If you are vulnerable to psychic damage from roguish language, stay away from these gibbering mouths. But if you intend on listening to this podcast about enriching your fantastical group hallucinations, you're too far gone already. Your next game is going to be unbeatable, and here's why. In this episode, we find some answers to how do we keep the tension high throughout an entire boss monster encounter? And what story elements are going to make the beast as epic as it deserves to be? And can we plan out the combat so that every round is incredibly action-packed? Welcome to the Hook and Chance podcast. I'm Jordan. And I'm his brother, Travis. So with all this OGL overreach stuff, I really don't know what we're allowed to say. This episode's going to be about what? Giant monsters, just like the intimidating... No, don't say it. Don't say the T word. Tur. Tur something, fill in the blanks. Yeah. uh, How do we do this? How do we avoid saying Tarask for the whole episode? God damn it. Well, you did it. They now own 25% of our podcast. I'm willing to give up one half of you. <laughs> not not 25% of each of us, just one half of me. Yeah, I think that's fair. You're in the office more than I am. I think you can spare it. Well, I guess we just have to accept it. Uh, will a new host come over and take over for me half the time? Am I going to have to go work in the pits of Renton, Washington in the bowels of Wizards headquarters for a while? Maybe? I mean, probably make up the debt. <laughs> well, yeah, we'll have to uh, sign an infernal contract when we get there. Yeah, maybe. But wait, there might just be hope. Let me uh, flip through the old 5.1 OGL and right there. Look at that. There's the Tarasque. So we can say it. You can say it all you want. All right. We're back in the game. Tarask, Tarask, Tarask. <laughs> Say that five times fast. <laughs> okay, that being said, with all this OGL stuff and, you know, it's been happening so fast. Yeah. Even in between writing this episode and now recording it, uh, new stuff has happened. So it's really hard for us to stay topical. <laughs> so we're not going to try. Yeah, but we are going to diversify how we talk about games a bit anyways. So this really isn't just about the Tarrasque. Right. It's about all of the big world-ending bads, the kaijus, the alien motherships. The giant killer robots, the, yeah, there's so Demons many. that make up the heart of the planet. Right. Like, there's so many different ways to approach something monstrous that threatens everything. And I think that's really what we're kind of getting to the heart of, is just something that could be a world-ending kind of terror. Yeah, something that's not just towering above you, but that is 8 million times the size of you. That's a lot. That's a lot (laughs) times. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe a little bit of an overreach. I don't think so. I, (laughs) I really do. But the reason we're talking about this today is because this is what GMs live for. And many of us hope to one day achieve... If, of course, we can keep a group together long enough to reach a point where they could maybe face something this big and gigantic. 
True. Some people just cheat and play level 20 campaigns. <laughs> but... You can't start at level 20. No, you can do whatever the hell you want. But this is what we're saying is that like the Godzilla surfacing, causing a mini tidal wave as he emerges from the ocean. That is the kind of moment that every GM deserves to just throw down at one point in their GMing career. The one that gets every mouth at the table agape in just absolute terror of the kind of bullshit they're going to have to deal with coming up next. Yeah, like you want them to feel that sense of how are we possibly going to face this threat? I've got a sword. I mean, you've been doing the thing for how long you've been introducing a new monster and they go, oh, shit. And then they introduce a new monster and then they go, oh, shit. Oh, you know what? We've beaten so many other different monsters. There's nothing that could potentially inspire this level of fear again, except when you drop down a monster like the Tarrasque. Yeah. Now, the problem is, is that you've spent 75 hours 3D printing the mini and another 20 hours painting it and then another two hours on the battle map and then three on game prep to drop it on the table. You see all of the jaws drop around the table. You get that sense of terror that you wanted to see in your player's eyes and then the three-hour mathathon begins. Right, because... A bit of a downfall of some of these creatures is that, you know, with hit points and health closer to the thousands than the hundreds and not a ton of variety in what they can do, it's just a slog. It could take hours, literally, probably multiple sessions if you're rolling poorly. Of course, either that or at their high level, they find a weakness that you never thought of, like, for example, flying. And then it's not a fight at all. Right, right. Because then you've also got this major issue with action economy when it comes to giant monsters. There's one target, there's six players. They get to deal a ton of damage per round. And it's really just like escalation that makes this fight interesting is just doing more and more and more damage and being able to roll 10 d6s and then 20 D like it's just it's that kind of thing that's the only kind of escalating stakes and either they are effective like that or they're just really ineffective and some of the creatures immunities are impassable you wanted to come to the table with something that they would have no chance of beating but oh no they actually have no chance of beating it so <laughs> They're just getting pissed off and frustrated. As a player, that's incredibly frustrating because you're like, yeah, I'm going to hit him with magic missile. Eh, reflective carapace. Okay, uh, I'm going to use my really high level fear spell. Nope, immune to fear. Cool. So really, it it really is kind of narrowing the funnel down to just punch it in the face a whole bunch of times. Or the toe, I guess. And hope that... <laughs> that's, uh, unless you unlock the fly <laughs> ability there. But... That's it. It's just like fight it until it's dead. And also it negates half of every damage that's rolled. Yeah. That's how we get into a fucking stupid ass math slog. 
So you either got that math slog, you got some loophole that they exploit, or it's impossible and pisses everybody off. None of those are great. So let's get to the episode. Like most of our episodes, we're focusing on a solution to this problem. And what we determined is there's actually three potential solutions, and all of them depend on why you're using this monster in the first place. Yeah, and without strong planning, pre-planning from the GM and being able to hint at the directions that are available to players, they're not going to have that direction on any kind of solution to any of these problems either. So it's really a lot of planning for the GM. We're going to look at how we can improve this entire process and experience of fighting that world-ending baddie. And we're going to build a rock-solid checklist to running a monster this big in Morden's Forge. This is Morden's Forge, where raw materials are reshaped, honed into tools and weapons for the most incredible of quests. So in talking about these massive monsters, we're going to go through a few bits. We're going to talk about the scenarios you would want to use them in, the pre-planning elements that you need for a grand experience, and kind of an overview of preparing for combat, what elements you want there. So the first bit is those scenarios. Now, this is really about determining your approach, because Jordan and I rolled this around extensively. In fact, that's a reason why this episode is one week late to release. Because when we cracked the lid on this thing, we were like, ooh, this is big. <laughs> this is a lot bigger than we thought. So we determined that it really does come down to a few different scenarios in the way that you want to run them. What is your reasoning for wanting to put a monster this big in your game in the first place? Because the kind of stories that we've experienced use them in fundamentally different ways. So the first one is where it's a force of nature. It is so big that the idea of going up to just smack it with whatever you've got is foolish. The concept is like, don't fight, just survive this thing's passage. Right. The second one is it's impossible odds. We want the players to feel like they are overwhelmed, but together they might just be able to pull it off. But it's certainly is not going to be with combat. That's ridiculous. We need a miracle. We need something otherworldly to help us. There's a legendary bog where a buried hat <laughs> is going to be placed on the creature's head. Should uh, I keep going? Is no, uh, Your Honor, I recommend that be striken from the record. Striken? Ha, I win. You used a fake word. Scenario three is where it's a terrifying obstacle, but it can be overcome. Like, it's powerful, but with your powers combined, you might just be able to pull this thing off. And this is really the one that comes to mind when you think of throwing in something big. Like, I've written off ever using a Tarrasque until I have an entire party of level 20 players. But is that necessarily the only time you can use one of these big-ass boss monsters. We would argue that that's the only time you're going to use its stat block as, like, a monster to fight. Right. But that's 
that's not the only place they belong in a story. So let's talk about each one of those scenarios just a little bit in a little bit more depth. So scenario one, using it as a force of nature, the don't fight, just survive. The solution is to mitigate the damage, save what you can, and be the heroes to the surroundings. This is, we're going to try and get potential casualties to a safe place. We're going to try and, you know, stop the tower from crumbling or the, you know, there's a kid in, oh no, we need to save him. (laughs) Which is what the characters in this kind of fiction are always doing. In Twister, I'm pretty sure they don't run up to the Twister. (laughs) And punch it in the face? (laughs) With bows and arrows or tanks. I mean, I think you need to watch the movie again, because I'm pretty sure that's kind of what they did. They just drove into the center of it. (laughs) Never mind, never mind. They were storm chasers. (laughs) The general theme, though, to these kinds of stories is that there is a fragility to everything that we build and all of our institutions, and they can all be crumbled. You know, Godzilla can, uh, you know, fart and knock over a building. So I think that was the sixth one. (laughs) The unreleased episode of. Yeah. Oh, boy. But yeah, it's that humanity always has this sense that we're in control of nature and the grand elements and all of this stuff that's been here for billions of years longer than us. We don't. Yeah. And in a fantasy context, this is. All of your magics, all of your towers, all of your gleaming castles matter not to something like a Tarrasque or a Gaiju. Yeah. Some really fun elements to play with in this kind of story are things like anyone can die. So like (laughs) you throw out the the community's strongest warrior and he gets (laughs) swatted into a mountain. Yes. (laughs) Like doesn't matter. Stuff like the bystanders you care about. Like. This is where we kill off one of the beloved NPCs because they just get smoked with a huge piece of concrete from a castle that just fell. Yeah, that really ups those stakes. Nobody is safe. You got kind of chase scenes where, you know, everyone's trying to outrun it as it's just shambling along at its normal pace, but you're on the ground desperately trying to keep ahead of it. Yeah, like a tidal wave. This is, you know... This is destruction that will consume you if you don't stay ahead of it. Yeah. Yeah. And like, then you've got stuff like nothing will be the same from a monumental disaster. This is all of those like, well, Roland Emmerich made the whole disaster porn genre, basically, where everyone just looks and sees all of the institutions of the world just get decimated. They have to be recognizable. You got to see the Statue of Liberty frozen in the ice. Yeah, which is a little harder to do in a fantasy world that you've just made up. So, you know, that's why these monsters are also good for later in the game when you've got all these places established and all of a sudden they're able to decimate them. A really fun kind of NPC to play with in these stories is the ignored expert. Somebody that knows everything there is to know about the Tarrasque. Yeah. But the community has ignored them to their peril. And now you guys come in. What are you going to do? Based on this ancient calendar, we know that the Tarrasque is coming back. Ah, shut up, you old (laughs) fool. We'll be fine. That's just an old legend. Nope, it's back. Yeah. And everybody's ignored this guy's entire life. 
<laughs> Nobody's ever respected his work. And for example, this does not have to be used at endgame kind of stats. We can use this a lot earlier in our game. We can potentially even throw this kind of creature at our players at, say, level three, because all they're really doing is trying to get away and be heroes within this smaller subset of this moment. The only thing to really point out, though, is that if you do this, the players are absolutely going to want revenge. This may potentially take over your entire campaign. Absolutely. And to that point, it's not a bad way to start campaigns because then they've got all this time to work up to finally defeating this. What was once a force of nature by the end is a terrifying obstacle. Right. And it sets up a whole campaign of how do we recover from such a huge monumental disaster and position our party as the potential heroes here where they can help and get invested in the local community, in rebuilding, in doing whatever heroes do, from saving bystanders to, you know, just protecting the innocent. Yeah, and, and just to clarify something, because if you're listening and thinking, well, okay, but what's the combat like? Well, to us, the combat for this scenario is a whole bunch of mini objectives that pop up, like, oh, there's some people trapped under some rubble. Go help them. You're not focused on the beast. You're focused on the destruction that this thing's rampage is causing. Then you've got scenario two. Now this is the, it's impossible odds. How on earth does our GM expect us to possibly triumph in this scenario? And this is where we have a slim chance, a single potential problem-solving solution but you just have to make it there. You just have to get it. You got to put the pieces together and we might have a hope. This is getting smog in this like one single scale kind of weak spot scenario. Totally. You needed like the special <laughs> tool that you couldn't just shoot it with a bow and arrow. And it has to be a blessed arrow of obviously. But it's also things like the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man from Ghostbusters. Right. Hey, our regular attacks aren't effective. We can't just blast it with our proton packs. We have to do the thing that we were told <laughs> explicitly not to do because it could end reality. But that's a foregone conclusion if the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man continues his rampage. So we're going to cross the streams. <laughs> now, keep in mind to actually translate this to a tabletop role playing game, you have to treat it almost more like a mystery because if you just make their one key to this thing's defeat and you hide it in a place that's not obvious, then they're not going to find it. Right. And this is where that pre-planning comes in because we have to understand what are all of those pieces? Where is the magic bow? Where can they, how do they bless the magic arrow? And what is, where do we go and research and find out that smog has one weak scale in his belly? Yeah, exactly. You're turning it into a series of, small missions that make up a quest to find out how to defeat this thing. You're not just hiding a MacGuffin somewhere that they'll never find. And this could also be like doing it in the heat of the moment. We know where these things are. Now we just have to make it there to get them. Now, another example might be stuff like the Avengers, where the regular approach of just beat the living fuck out of everything flying through New York isn't working, Tony Stark's gonna have to fly up into that giant space butthole. 
Yeah. And close it with his magic technology. Or even the creative solution from Men in Black of just get yourself eaten and destroy it from the inside. <laughs> True. Yeah, I forgot about that one. But case in point, you need to have some way of broadcasting to your players that there are other creative solutions other than fighting it. And you have to have thought far enough in advance that you can lay all of these out and broadcast them to your players. They know what to do. And if you really want, you can take it that extra step and like a good mystery, creating multiple paths. Like if you can think of a few really cool things that they could do and then you start laying down the clues and the hints, then they can take advantage of any of them and feel brilliant for doing so. And make the choice. I mean, really, that's what tabletop games are all about, is players making difficult choices. So they get to be presented with three options and they choose which one is most likely to be effective. Yeah, totally. Now with scenario two, the only thing to really warn about is the issue of acknowledging that huge power gap. We need to definitely get it across to the players. Do not punch this shit in the face. You will get decimated. <laughs> so and this could be as simple as, you know, it shows up. They try to punch it a couple times. You very clearly demonstrate that that's not working. It topples a mountain on top of them and they wake up a week later. Very important here, too, is the fact that you don't want to run an entire encounter where they're unable to hurt it. You don't want like half an hour of gameplay <laughs> to get to the point where they realize that they're not doing anything. Yeah. The third scenario, a terrifying obstacle. Now this is, it's powerful, but with all of us together, we can punch it into oblivion if we work together as a team. Yeah, Captain Planet, he's our hero. <laughs> so the solution here is we are going to make it a battle, but we're going to make it an interesting one with different stages and different facets to it that make the battle really complex, knowing that our players, who are high enough level to actually fight the thing, know that they can just punch it, but we're going to add so many complications that it's going to make it an interesting encounter. Because this is what we were warning about, of like, the biggest bag of hit points they've ever seen is still just a very boring fight. Right. So you need so many elements, you need stages, you need, like you said, complications and choices to make during that fight. So this, the theme here is all about the power of teamwork, and we're going to lean on elements like the Band of Misfits. Which is always present in TTRPGs anyways. I mean, yeah, that's a wonderful point, is that they are the misfits, and they just need to figure out their shit, which means potentially throwing more stuff at them that is kind of like those personal, you know, we got to tempt the rogue. We got to do a lot of different things. We got to threaten things that are off screen so that they band together and fight the big bad as a group. The heroic sacrifice can be an element here. If anyone's feeling particularly bold. I love that because that's the one where like somebody gets themselves swallowed. Totally as the last-ditch effort to finish this thing. Yeah. And then, of course, the other juggling the threats. They need to do damage, but can we draw their eye elsewhere? And the battlefield is getting treacherous, and there's a lot of other things that need your attention. And what do you choose, again, choice, to prioritize 
in this combat. And that can really highlight the Band of Misfits aspect as well, because if you've got something that's threatening uh, a church that the Paladin cares about and something threatening the horde of gold that the Rogue has collected, then you're going to have a bit of a conversation on your hands. Right. Now, this is kind of that the Avengers Age of Ultron, where there's just so many threats and the city is lifting up and somebody's got to take care of the, you know, there's so many different solutions that are potentially being explored that they are spread too thin. And it's only when they get together and really focus their tactics can they possibly win. And then we've also got like vibes like Superman versus Doomsday, where they're just beating the living shit. Well, I guess a more current reference would be like Superman versus Zod in the new Superman, where they're just decimating all kinds of buildings and their huge fight <laughs> is taking place across multiple places and multiple environments. Like that really excites me too of like, can we kick this thing's ass through multiple time zones? Totally. That's a very good point because this is your high level players versus your high level monster. Things should get weird. Yeah. Let's teleport it to another dimension yeah. and let's fight it over there. <laughs> It's like uh, also like kind of like Peter versus the chicken from Family Guy. <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. <laughs> Anyways, it's a duel to the death and you're supposed to just fight it. So that's what scenario three is really all about. Something that just feels epic, heroic, over the top in every facet. Yeah. So once we've established the vibe and the reason and why we're putting this thing in, in the game in the first place the next thing we need to tick off is the thing that we've recently discussed in one of our previous episodes the ticking clock why do they have to do it if the tarask just crawls out of the ground and the trask is back and all it's going to do is roam the earth for a little while there's no pressure to deal with the solution yeah if it's just hanging out in a desert just sitting on its big tarasque ass making craters it's not that big of a deal yeah but as soon as it starts to charge towards water deep then we've got a problem on our hands right one of the aspects of our ticking clock is what's the threatenable element get specific about what is going after is it just the destruction of a city or is it going to reach a macguffin at the heart of the city which is a huge crystal with monumental powers that might make the Tarask now electrified. And now he's got electric <laughs> power. I don't know, but there has to be some threatenable element. The whole plane of existence is electrified after that. Yeah, there we go. And you got to stay in trees in order to not get <laughs> shocked. Oh boy, we've just ruined a whole campaign. Sorry. But most simply, you got to give the monster a goal and a timeline to reach it unencumbered. Because, you know, without the hero's interference, it's going to accomplish this by this date. The next thing that we need to check off our planning list is the party goal. So it's not just a thing to say, okay, party, there's a monster. Godzilla is now rampaging throughout the countryside because for some reason... This is not enough motivation for the people who are supposedly playing heroes. Not at all. I'm busy gambling. <laughs> they need 
personal stakes. So it's one thing to say the city's threatened. It's another one to say your dad is in the city and he's going to be crushed unless you stop this monster. If the party is in a city on another continent and I'm having a hell of a time gambling at the tavern, you tell me that there's a big monster that in a town I've never heard of and I should care because I'm a hero. Well, I might just not. Weirdly enough, you are correct. What world are we living in? <laughs> where somebody's playing a mighty hero and they go, yeah, that's not my problem. Well, I mean, I'm just addressing the fact that there's a lot of different styles of games out there, really. We're not all playing heroes that would drop everything to help anybody. True enough. So that's why we need to make sure that the party has personal stakes and a personal goal. You know, for example, even if it is a far-off town that they have never been to. They have no ties to the city. All we have to do at this point is say that, yes, uh, one of the player's romantic interests sent a courier to say, hey, I just got called away on business to X city. Oh, shit. The monster's headed there? Now we have personal stakes. Now the players cannot possibly ignore the threat. Totally. And I'd say that's almost like a if nothing else scenario where a much better scenario might be bringing the monster to the town that the party's spent, you know, 10 sessions getting attached to. Right. Learning all the shopkeepers names and starting their business and all of that fun stuff. If the monster's in a city, that's bad. If the monster is in a city next to Troll Skull Manor, where you have all of your friends gathered at a big party little jiminy biscuit has just <laughs> finally learned his one string banjo and he's putting on his first performance and i just got news that there's a tarasque on the way <laughs> you get handed two slips of paper one is to jiminy which jiminy biscuit jiminy biscuits <laughs> inaugural performance and the other one says oh shit tarasque headed to town yeah and i'll point out that you saved jiminy biscuit previously from the goblin tribe right all of these stakes we really we just need to make sure that not only do we have a threat there are personal stakes we have to give the players a reason something that they're personally connected to to care about yeah just like jiminy cares about his banjo <laughs> of course Jiminy and his banjo are the most important thing to save <laughs> when the world-ending monster arrives to town. It absolutely is. Okay, so the next thing that we need to chat about, the story beats. This isn't necessarily, uh, you know, the, the quintessential piece of the puzzle, but this fits in very well with the story beats that we've kind of outlined on our GM planning mat, we've kind of talked about these in the past in previous episodes, is that within the story beats, there are a couple of really important steps that tie together the goal, the, the personal stakes, all of these pieces, they actually fit really nicely within the story beats. Essentially, within those story beats, we've established where they are currently, we've established kind of people that they care about, that they love, in any one of our scenarios, and then we've given them a goal and we've said, now go get it. And what comes next is we really need to challenge the party. This next piece is really just about splitting the attention 
of the party towards several different challenges and problems, and then give them a bunch of little obstacles to overcome and reward them for it. So we've got our personal stakes, but it's also good to define the collateral, and that's just all the other stuff that's going to get destroyed. It, it serves the purpose of fleshing out the world, making it all feel more real and more heroic to save all the other stuff. It's as simple as listing a couple of things to pepper into your descriptions surrounding the events unfolding as this creature is stomping its way through the outskirts of town. Each edition of the collateral in the world, regardless of whether or not they're able to save it, like, if we want to try to get across world-ending kind of situations, then we need to destroy a lot of shit. We need to take down all of those monuments. All of the stuff that we've previously introduced them to, we need to now start wrecking that. And some of this stuff, they're never going to get a chance to even potentially save it. But we need it to help heighten the stakes. We need to show the impact of what this thing is having on the world. The best example that I have of this is like, remember that movie 2012 where for some reason the Mayan calendar ended the world? Yeah, as we all thought it would. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> every last one of us. Yes, everyone was thought preparing that. for the end, <laughs> Travis. Right. Okay. Anyways, Roland Emmerich again made a movie that I I honestly that that plot was so flimsy I have I couldn't tell you what was <laughs> focus in it. on the crucial right. details <laughs> anyways crucial details the point that I'm trying to make is that we saw a tidal wave moving over I would assume what is Mount Everest and a tiny Tibetan monk was bravely ringing a bell in front of the face <laughs> of a tidal wave on his mountaintop temple. And the wave just kind of crashed over it and just, you know, power washed him real good. I'm surprised he had a bell for that. Yeah, just like a tidal, tidal wave bell. <laughs> ring the tidal wave bell. <laughs> we haven't needed that for it for once. The, I mean, the, <laughs> the dude's bravery like that was just awesome. Yeah, like yeah. he just kind of sat there stoically ringing his bell. You make a good point. It was a good scene. The point to bring it up, though, is that. This is pretty much what all Roland Emmerich movies are, is look at this thing that you recognize and look how much it got destroyed. Absolutely. Don't be afraid to wreck some stuff that you've built up. You don't have to destroy your entire world you've built. You just want to kick the party in the ass and say, this is happening. Yeah. This isn't like a distant threat. This isn't one of those things that I'm just going to threaten you with and you're going to beat it and it's all going to be okay. And it also helps illustrate the scale of things. And this is why, again, with your monster, depending on how big it is, we really just want it to decimate things effortlessly so that we can add some of that, oh, just the fear of God yeah. into the players. That's what we're after with this. Now you want to define the devices for success. So as the GM, we know what the intention is going to be for this. We've decided on one of those three scenarios of, you know, fighting it, mitigating it, or just surviving. And because we've defined these, now we can create some elements that help the player and point them towards it. Like mini goals that you can keep setting up that all work towards that grand success of whichever avenue you're going down. Yeah, so for example, in the impossible odds scenario two, 
you know, the thing that jumps to mind is the salt and wounds module. Now this was, I think this is still available on the GMs guild and some of those other sites, but salt and wounds was a really cool concept for an entire city because it was a city that was centered around a Tarrasque that was alive and currently being devoured by an entire city constantly because of its regenerative abilities. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up is because in the lore of the city, the way that they originally captured the Tarrasque was with magically imbued ballistas and huge magically imbued chains that they shot the ballistas into the Tarrasque at the same time, pinning it in place and capturing it. So if this is our approach, then we need to start to define what are those devices for success? Are they the ballistas? Do they know about the chains? Do they have some kind of plan to capture this thing or mitigate its damage? And there's so many different directions you can go with this. And yeah, my mind just reels because, you know, you might go that massive chains route or you might go the uh, weaknesses in hard to reach areas on its body like uh, Shadow of the Colossus. Right. A pretty old PlayStation game at this point. But one of my favorite games I've ever played where you're scaling and stabbing these incredibly large creatures in their weak places. Or you could go the other direction, and now all of a sudden we're going to make sure that we let the players know that there is somebody working on an adamantine super suit that requires five people to pilot it, like a megasword. Absolutely. Like, whatever the solution is, we need to define it, and we need to start peppering those in. Or maybe it's only weak to Jiminy Biscuits. (laughs) latest tune so you're gonna huck an orphan no no it plays a banjo (laughs) oh i see the melodies (laughs) nice the next thing that we need to do is we need to define some of the alternatives and some of the choices that they make so now that they have a super clear goal a get to the super suit find the ballistas or run away season jiminy biscuits and get ready for throwing you don't throw him to get him to play his little banjo. <laughs> you place him in front of the Tarrasque, Sorry. get the Tarrasque's attention, get the Tarrasque to focus up and not destroy anything for just a second for Jimmy <laughs> to pluck his little string. <laughs> and that will what? That will convince it that it's been going down the wrong path in life. <laughs> The Tarrasque will reconsider its life choices. That's right. Cool. Okay. Anyways, now that the players know what to do, we need to give them all kinds of little complications and alternatives to make sure that this is a choice, that they don't feel railroaded towards one option. And on a large scale, that's what it does. But on a small scale, it also works because... You can always be providing these choices to keep players engaged as they're prepping for the fight, as they're fighting this thing, but it layers all the way down. The movie example of this is like the players are fighting the monster. The fight is moving in their favor. They're winning. They're f- this thing is showing some signs of weakness and it looks tired, but now there's a child in the path of a car. It's that kind of vibe of like Spider-Man has to look over to the left and oh no, something else needs to be saved. And so he can't keep punching the monster. 
Yeah. Give it a chance to get away and save the kid or keep punching it. This is all of those complications that make their choices feel heroic. Ideally, you want to jot down two to five ideas that you can just pepper in whenever you need it throughout this entire story. And the starting point for those is figuring out all of those little elements that you can, you know, use to draw the characters away from their goal. And that really depends on the characters, because sure, a hero might go to save the kid, but a rogue might go to save the priceless vase that's being threatened by a flying car, too. <laughs> Spider-Man chooses the vase <laughs> over the child. Oh, no, very expensive vase. I wasn't saying the choice between the child and the vase. <laughs> a choice between punching the monster. Oh, right, right. Yes, it's the rogue's choice to go and save the vase. Even worse, if Jiminy is in the priceless item. <laughs> Poor Jiminy is really getting his ass kicked in these scenarios. Yeah, what a fighter. The next kind of step as a GM is you need to intro your scale. So this is a really kind of critical step of being able to convey to your party with language that they'll understand what the intention is. And doing this little step, you know, using that language, thinking about it, thinking about how you're going to intro the monster that really gets this across because we could send our players in a totally wrong direction if we intro it a little bit differently. I, I don't know. I, I think we need some examples. Jordan, you got some? Well, I mean, this really depends on the monster you're using too, and that'll help you to kind of flavor this introduction. Just to illustrate how different scenario one, force of nature, is from scenario three, a terrifying obstacle. The first one might be like you see a mountainous form slowly rise from the earth, an avalanche of mud and trees forever scarring the majesty of this forest. Yeah, so it's mountain scale. Yeah. As a hero, my first inclination is not to punch it. Right. <laughs> you don't just say, I run up and attack. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guarantee a player will. Yeah. So, somebody yeah, might yeah, yeah. do it, but... If we're planning on the language, then we may have a chance of getting this across. But if you do intend to fight it, it might be like a hand with fingers like trees erupts from the earth, dragging a massive demon into the light of day. It towers above, but looks down at you to let loose a screech that threatens to split you apart. Right. So again, we don't have that kind of scale in our language that says this thing is so big, you'll never beat it. We can use some of that massive language later, but we need to get our players into the fight by just suggesting that, yeah, this is like any other monster that you've fought. You're level 20s. Yeah. Go and kick its ass. It's big, but it's looking at you. Yeah. It wants to tango. Yeah, right, right. That's a great example of looking directly at you like this is about you and it, yeah. not about it and the world. The mountainous creature is staring off into the far distance. It's you're, you're, <laughs> you're nothing. A part of the landscape. <laughs> right. So then we need to plan for our approach. This is the combat. You know, we've got all the lead up. We've thought about our personal stakes and our world stakes. We've thought about all of these other little elements. We've got all of the pieces. And now we're going to lead up to the actual combat. So. For instance, scenario one, the force of nature. Really, it's going to be all about avoiding it as best we can. We're going to focus on cover 
not getting stomped on. Yeah. In this scenario, we really want to just find ways that we can give the players plenty of options throughout the combat to avoid it. For scenario two, the impossible odds, you might be focused on giving the players little challenges that's going to lead them towards the benefits and tools that they're going to need in order to vanquish this thing. Right. It's more about getting to the place and avoiding damage and things like that. And then they finally make it. And that's going to make the combat rather short. Then they can turn around and unleash hell. So the combat is more focused on the difficulty of obtaining the objective. Yeah. Whereas scenario three, the terrifying obstacle, is really just a a heightened up, scaled up monster encounter. You're throwing in as much as you can because this should be a grander fight than, you know, a troll or an ogre. But it's it follows the same logic. Now, we find it best to think about combat in three stages. We've, again, got an encounter planner on our GM mat. This keeps the combat feeling not so much like a slog. Typically, and historically, you and I have, you know, at some point in our history, just treated every combat as a combat. It was all just one big amalgamous goo (laughs) a thick goo (laughs) and now we definitely look at every individual combat as how are we going to do a phase one a phase two and a phase three and how are we going to make them feel very distinctly different and keep raising the stakes throughout keep changing the way that combat feels we're defensive we're offensive this is happening now this is happening so it's it's very much distinctly different And there's three elements that you want to plan those three stages of. You got your tactics, your environment, and your stakes. So let's start with tactics. We need to plan those tactic changes. Our monster does something different in each one of these stages. So we like to think of these as dismissal, overcorrect, and table flip as the stages of combat itself. And weirdly... The Tarask stat block actually has these kind of built in, though it's not explicitly stated. For example, in scenario three, if we were going to be fighting this thing, the Tarask has kind of a dismissal stage where it doesn't really care about them. It's got a reflective carapace ability and frightful presence. It is a threat without fighting the players. Right. It can still be going after things that they care about, using its basic attacks. It's just wading through having a good time, really. Yeah. And then, once the players kind of land enough damage or impeded enough from its goal, now all of a sudden, we go beyond dismissal to overcorrect. And now it sees them as a bit of a threat. It's going to try to deal with the annoying gnats that keep biting it by getting real serious. Right. The mosquito's been biting you a few times, and then you punch a hole in the drywall trying to get to it. (laughs) That sounds way too specific to be not real. (laughs) So this is where it starts to use stuff like its multi-attack and some of its legendary actions. Now we're scaring the ever-living shit out of our players because now we can see exactly how much the Tarrasque can do when it applies itself. (laughs) You can do it, Tarrasque. Just believe in yourself. (laughs) 
And then third is the table flip. And this is, okay, these guys are actually doing damage to me. I'm really pissed off. I'm at half health and I really need to get the message across that I'm not to be trifled with. So with the Tarask, for instance, this is a swallow attack. This is the fun of these kinds of monsters to me is that if you've got this kind of structure, you can start giving it abilities that it does not have that the games don't give you. I mean, if I were to to come up with a table flip ability for the Tarask, I might say that it does a stomp. That's such a classic move of this kind of beast. And it causes an earthquake. Right. <laughs> there we go. It destroys everything around it in like a 300 meter radius. And I mean, if I were throwing in its ability to regenerate that for some reason was taken off of this monster, I, I shouldn't say for some reason. I know damn well it was already a slug. <laughs> right. So if you have it regenerating the whole time <laughs> yeah so i can understand why they took that ability away but if i were throwing this back in i would throw it in at that overcorrect. this is the oh shit it's actually regenerating i'm gonna heal one of the wounds that was given to it by the players that's the kind of thing that we're going for so we've got these distinct mile markers these distinct signposts that say that this monster is now changing tactics it took a moment, but now it's starting to self-heal. Right. Oh, shit. To avoid the slog, the pure slog of it, make that an active ability. Give it a shell, an impenetrable shell that it goes into for three rounds just to scare the crap out of everybody. It comes out with new abilities, longer claws. Now it's got electric <laughs> fire breath and laser eyes. This is the super shredder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, where he comes back all mutated and <laughs> exactly. like veiny. <laughs> Don't say veiny on the podcast. <laughs> so the point to this whole thing is that just because the stat block has abilities doesn't mean that you're going to pull out its big guns right off the bat. Monster tactics should introduce some oh shit moments. That doesn't happen if we just roll initiative and go with it. So that's how we break this into stages that feel like the stakes keep getting upped every round or two. Totally. And the next way to keep things constantly shifting is to plan environmental changes. So we go from buildings falling as the main environmental challenge to now you can't step on the ground because the floor is lava. <laughs> but you can show advantages with this too. Like environmental changes don't always have to make things just worse for the party. A huge chasm opens up, and now they have to get across that. So it is just planning three environmental changes that will really complicate just traversing the landscape of where this whole combat is taking place. And then the final piece is really planning the stakes changes. So how do we call attention to new threats, new collateral, and new changes within the world just to up the kind of tension that we're feeling during this combat. This was a lot of theoretical stuff. And I think, I think, we're probably going to need to do another episode on this where we actually put it into practice. Yeah, that's the split. This episode was kind of the theory and, and the concepts, but if you want to follow us deeper down this rabbit hole of actually building out these three scenarios, giving each detail that you need to make this epic and really pop follow us to the next episode
oh boy, we actually have to walk the talk. And I swear that there will be such a minimal amount of Jiminy the Biscuits. <laughs> Thank God. And I swear it'll be more on point than the end of this episode was. <laughs> it will go off the rails talking <laughs> about Jiminy Biscuits. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. I tried to make that promise, but I can't stick to it. Now, what we've talked about in this episode, I mean, we've got so many different resources about this. We've got episodes about story steps. We've got, you know, resources about campaign planning. We've done a lot of this content before, but where you can see it all kind of coalesced into one place is definitely in the GM planning table mat that is available at hookandchance.com. It's on our store. Go take a look. I think you can zoom in enough that you can kind of get the gist, but we're going to do more episodes about this in the coming weeks and months, but we're going to put it into practice in the next episode. Yeah, check that out if you want to start writing down any of the ideas that you've had during this episode. And the people that we would want to save if a kaiju came to town are the two newest patron supporters that we have. Huge thanks to you, Steve A. and Sigma. Yeah, thank you so much. Welcome, Steve A. and Sigma. Uh, really excited to have you. And also, Jiminy Biscuits can get wrecked. We're saving you first. And we're throwing the rest of our wonderful patrons under the bus and leaving them behind. <laughs> what the hell? No. <laughs> but we're still thankful to Karidoscope, Skylar E, Deadman, Ninja Ducky, Sue Art, Blackthorn, First Law, Peacock Dreams, DM Thunderbum, Marley R, Time Warp, Dangerous Marmalade, Zach G, No Ma'am, Michelle T, Adlerius, Chris F, The Senate, Lucas D, Lila G, The GM Tim, Nevermore, Thomas W, DM Natsuki, Heavy Arms, Leprechaun, and Will H. Goodbye, good luck, we're out of here. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode. We hope it was super helpful to you. We hope that you run a big epic boss monster and you tell us about it when it goes super well. Thank you also to Tabletop Audio for all of the sound effects that you heard in this episode. You can join the absolutely wonderful group of brilliant DMing and playing minds if you join our Discord. Hook and Chance. You can also follow us at Hook and Chance on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Reddit, Discord. Uh, there's a few others, I'm sure. Just type in Hook and Chance. You'll find our socials. Yeah. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening, listening and don't fight Godzilla with a sword. <laughs> Ineffective. Ineffective.